So just to um, just to re-emphasize this, Kathy mentioned uh, the last thing we'll do uh, tomorrow morning is is do a Q and A. Uh, that's not something that's always been officially part of what we do, but it just kind of has grown out of uh, a need and desire. Um, so put your questions down. Traditionally, at the women's retreat, for some reason, there's more of a tendency to throw really hard questions at me. So go for the gusto. You know, we'll, we'll do our best here. But that's always a fun time. And um, sometimes it's a little bit different flavor when the guys are not here. This has been a joy for me. I've been preparing to come uh, here be, be with you since uh, about the second week in January. And so this has been a joy. I've been praying for you and excited to share with you. Um, next week, I'm going to be at Shepherd's Conference all week with a bunch of men. How disappointing is that going to be <laughs> after, after this uh, precious time? Hearing you ladies sing is just is delightful to me. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, and we'll just read our next parable to get going with our last session for this morning. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, another familiar parable to us. They're all familiar because that's the nature of parables. They're very memorable. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, fixed between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, we've been using the theme of blossoming as God's child. And in this message, I want to talk about blossoming with plenty of water. One dried out flower was heard saying to another dried out flower, we'll call them Rose and Lily. Rose said, you know what I love? I love water. And Lily says, I know, isn't water wonderful? I believe in water. Rose replied, I agree, and isn't it great that we've been planted right next to this stream of water? And Lily said, my roots are right next to it. It's so comforting to know that this water's right here, right in reach, if ever I decided I needed some. Rose looked at Lily and said, you, you know, you are looking a little dry. <laughs> Lily said, well, you're no flowering bud yourself. You need a petal makeover. And so Rose and Lily, with their roots right by the water, spent their days telling each other how dry they looked. And of course, the lesson is if they had simply reached out their roots to 
take the water which was freely available, they would be vibrant and colorful and healthy. The metaphor of water is used very clearly in Scripture, most notably in Psalm 1, to speak of the nourishing refreshment of the Bible, of the Word of God. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So we want to consider this parable of the rich man and Lazarus because the clear lesson in this parable, and I'm just going to tell you up front this time, is the sufficiency and the capability of the Bible. And in case you haven't noticed, every book we're giving away every session has something to do with what I'm preaching. So if you pay attention, you'll know what I'm preaching before I even get there. The sufficiency and capability of the Bible is so important because today we have Bibleless preaching, we have Bibleless churches, and we have Bibleless professing Christians. Now, they may use the Bible as if the scriptures are some sort of little reference guide, but in so many ways, the centrality of scripture, the, the central core nature of scripture has really been lost. And the result is that now the biblical gospel is all being erased. Now, we are a part of a church called Grace Bible Church. And so you might think, well, you're preaching to the choir, Steve. But if every one of you can honestly say before the Lord that your love for the scriptures is matched by your intake of the scriptures and obedience to the scriptures, and it's right where you like it, then I'm preaching to the choir. But since none of us can say that, myself included, we always need to hear about the sufficiency of scripture. Well, let's look at the parable itself for a few minutes, and then we'll consider how to meaningfully apply what we learned. We can divide the parable into three categories of people to organize our thoughts. There are the saved, there are the superior, and the stubborn. The saved, the superior, and the stubborn. Let's look first at the saved. Now, this story that Jesus tells is really a story of the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. The first two characters in the story are complete opposites in social order. First, you have the rich man. He was clothed in purple. This is an imperfect verb. It means every single day he was clothed in purple. It meant he dressed like royalty. There's a sense of self-importance that he never looked shabby. He didn't have a day where he just lounged around in his sweats. He was always looking important. And he was dressed in fine linen. This is just a general term that means well-made clothing. And the text doesn't condemn him for either one of these things. In fact, the godly woman of Proverbs 31 has said in verse 22 that her clothing is fine linen and purple. It means she dressed nicely and that's okay. But for this man... It betrays his sense of self-entitlement, self-importance. And the text says that he feasted sumptuously every day. Again, showing his self-importance. I deserve this. Heaven forbid I just have a salad once in a while. I'm going to have a buffet. No, no offense to the buffet. I'm going to have a buffet every meal of every day. This is the way that Jesus chose to illustrate that this man had no real faith. He was just a pretentious show. He had a show of faith. But then there's Lazarus at the opposite end of the social spectrum. The text says he was laid at the gate of the rich man's house. This is a passive verb. It means someone else put him there. He couldn't get there on his own. He was a poor man. He was evidently paralyzed, unable to walk, sickly in some way. 
He had some sort of terrible skin condition. Perhaps it was bed sores as a result of continually being on his side or on his back, which can be a real problem. And all he wanted was to be like one of the dogs that got to take the crumbs from the table of the rich man. He's probably not literally at the table or under the table, but it's just metaphorically saying that he hoped for the occasional scrap of food. But instead of even receiving scraps like the dog's, not only did the dogs eat the scraps, they came and licked this man's sores as well. If you know anything about animals, it is well known that animals can sense when something is about to die. And they come and they're licking his sores because they think he's about to die. And they turn out to be right. This is the only parable of Jesus in which he gives one of his characters a name. It doesn't mean it has to be a true story. There are lots of other aspects of the story which go beyond reality, such as people under God's judgment, having normal conversation with people in God's blessing after death. But the clear assumption here is that Lazarus dies in genuine saving faith in God. How do we know this? Verse 22, the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, this is an important uh, important part of the text here because both the rich man and the poor man are Jewish. And so this is a picture of reclining at a banquet table with with Abraham. This is like saying, you have risen all the way to the top of what it means to be a Jew. Uh, For example, in the United States, there are over 300 million people. And to be invited to sit next to the president means that you beat out 299.99 million other people. And so this is a big deal for him to sit right by Abraham. The poor man dies. Then the rich man also died. And Jesus says that he is now in Hades. Now, some of your translations may say that he is in hell. This is a misnomer. Hades is more accurate. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna. The Greek word for Hades is Hades. That's where we get the name. It's two different places. And let me just clarify this for you real quick so we can be accurate. Hades is the intermediate abode of the dead who await judgment. It is the intermediate place. Hades cannot be the same place as hell, the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 14 says that after all the unsaved dead of all the ages are judged by God, quote, then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So Hades is, as it were, the waiting room outside the courtroom of God's judgment. But Hades is apparently similar, if not identical in nature, to the final place of the unsaved, that is hell. So what do we learn about what happens to the lost who die without faith in Christ? Well, we learn several things. First of all, they're in torment. Verse 23, it's a word that means in torture. This isn't a neutral zone. This isn't a a party place. This isn't a place that just is sort of blank and not bad or good. It's a place of everlasting pain place of everlasting torture. Secondly, we learn they are in anguish. Verse 24, this is a word that speaks of physical pain. This man, you know this, has some sort of physical body with which to experience the judgment of God. We don't understand that fully, but he's not a floating spirit. He has, he he uses the term to put the water on my tongue. And he is apparently in some sort of physical pain. It's a word that speaks of sorrow and distress. And it also includes emotional torture to go along with that. There's torment. There's anguish. The third thing we learn is that they are in flames. Verse 24, I am in anguish in this flame. 
I don't know why this is, but many want to make the flames of Hades, the flames of hell, metaphorical, some sort of symbol. Scripture never does that. Scripture doesn't give you the right to make something a symbol just because it's uncomfortable for you. It is a symbol if it says it's a symbol, but there's no reason to make this a metaphor. The association of fire and judgment is pervasive in Scripture. I wonder if the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah thought that the fire coming down from heaven was merely metaphorical. It was real. So they're in torment, they're in anguish, they're in flames. Fourth, they're in hopelessness. Verse 26, Abraham tells the man that none may cross over. Once in Hades, you await judgment day in the flames. And all the ridiculous fantasies that unbelievers have about how they're going to talk their way into heaven, how they're going to appeal to the Lord about how good they were. Question, who even said you'll get to speak? Who said you'll have permission to talk? In Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, there's only one person speaking. That is the judge himself reading off every single sin of every person who rejected Christ called opening the books. So, in Hades, the rich man is pictured as being able to look far away and see Abraham and Lazarus being taken care of at Abraham's side. And this is very important because Lazarus is pictured as a Jew seated next to this greatest place of honor, next to faithful Abraham. And Abraham says that the poor man in his earthly life received bad things, but now he's in comfort. He's in bliss. I know all of you have suffered in one way or another. I don't think any of us have been been paralyzed, laid at somebody's door and had dogs come lick our sores. I don't think we've ever gone through that. And so Lazarus is here the quintessential picture of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Lazarus epitomizes the saved, the one who through faith came to God in humility, and though he suffered greatly in this life, his genuine, humble, saving faith brought him home to heaven. So that's the saved. Now we see the superior. The superior. This rich man is so sure of himself, so confident, certainly there must be some mistake. So look how he addresses Abraham. Verse 24, Father Abraham, Have mercy on me. What's he saying? Hey, remember, we're related. I'm a Jew. You're the greatest Jew. I'm a pretty good one myself. In other words, I have the right DNA. What am I doing here? And so he starts small. He says, Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Abraham basically says, you had your chance. You had your whole life filled with good things, and the entire time you never acknowledged God. You never humbled yourself before God. You never repented before God. This is pretty significant coming from Abraham, by the way, who was way wealthier in this life than this rich man was. Abraham was rich enough to have his own standing army and to have defeated kingdoms on his own. So to Abraham, this rich man is not that rich. Abraham tells him that no one will pass between these two realms. Lazarus couldn't come there if he wanted to. Okay, so let's try something else. The man turns his attention to his family, to his all-important brothers, because his family is inherently deserving, of course. They also are descendants of Abraham. They also are wealthy. Surely they must get special treatment. 
So in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now I want you to notice something here. In Hades, in flames, the rich man saw Lazarus as beneath him, as puny and an unimportant person to do his bidding. In verse 24, the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus to stick his wet finger in the rich man's mouth. How degrading is that? And here in verse 27, he says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. Even in Hades, the rich man thinks Lazarus exists for him. He is arrogant. Let me tell you this. The punishment of the wicked will never cure them. It will never make them righteous. Even in the flames of God's judgment, the rich man is not broken. He still thinks of himself as superior. Don't feel sorry for people in hell. They want to be there because they don't want to humble themselves. Trust me on that. This is proof. You know, this the one thing that he didn't ask for. Get me out of here. He didn't ask for that. We've seen the saved. We've seen the superior. Now let's imagine the stubborn. The stubborn. The rich man has asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers to warn them. It's kind of funny to think about this. What was Lazarus supposed to say? Hey, your brother was an idiot and now he's in flames. Do you think they would believe him? No. And Abraham doesn't think so either. Abraham tells him that his brothers need to believe the scriptures. They have Moses. They have the prophets. That God has given the written revelation of who he is, the sin of mankind, what man is required of by God, that we repent and have faith in the Savior Messiah who is so clearly presented in the Old Testament. But of course, the rich man is so much smarter than Abraham. He knows better. Look what he says in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Here he is in the flames of Hades looking up to heaven and correcting Abraham. How arrogant he must be. In other words, if Lazarus was raised from the dead, my brothers would believe him. Well, Abraham begs to differ. No, they will not believe. Verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is a staggering statement about the authority and the sufficiency of of the Bible alone. The Bible and the Bible alone is bounteous and plentiful to give spiritual life to the lost, to those who will believe the message of the gospel. It is the ultimate authority. Now the question here is, who are the stubborn ones? We almost done over there? (laughs) How are we doing? Thank you. Who are the stubborn ones? Well, the man says he has five brothers. And even even in Israelite society, that's a lot. There's a lot of brothers. They are in their father's house. So what are they doing in their father's house? Well, this is is an obvious description of a family business. It would be a massive family business. They're obviously all wealthy. They dress like royalty all the time. Um, They have a, a wonderful business going. And so he's saying, I need to protect the business. Even in the flames, he is completely materialistic. He said, we got to protect the family business. I didn't bring any of it with me, but I'm going to protect the business at all costs. These are Jewish men, arrogant in their wealth. And why are they arrogant? I'm a descendant of Abraham. Of course, I believe this. Abraham is pessimistic about them. He seems to be predicting that they're not going to believe the scriptures. He predicts this. They're going to be arrogant. They're going to proclaim their own righteousness. They won't believe 
Now, I have a question for you. We have a group of men who are arrogant. They're self-righteous. They believe, or Abraham believes, that they won't believe the word of the gospel. What other group in the New Testament only believe in their own self-righteousness, only believe in their own Jewish heritage, and yet they won't believe either the scriptures and would not believe even if they saw someone raised from the dead? Very good. You know your Bible. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus had just told a, a parable about idolatry, specifically about being a lover of money. Look at Luke 16, verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And while he's still talking to the Pharisees, to those who would not believe that the scriptures say about what the scriptures say about Christ and repentance and salvation, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. This parable is aimed at them. They are the stubborn. But what about the part where he tells them, the Pharisees, the five brothers in the story, that they would not believe even if someone were raised from the dead? Well, Jesus told them a fictional story, but in this one instance, he assigned a name to one of the characters, Lazarus. And of course, you remember that just a few months after telling this story to the Pharisees, John 11 records that Jesus raised from the dead a man named Lazarus. And what did the Pharisees and the other leaders of Israel do to respond to the fact that Jesus Christ raised someone from the dead. They plotted to kill Jesus and they plotted to kill Lazarus. And a couple of months ago, I made the case in John 11 that the Pharisees did in fact murder Lazarus. So in this story, what would the five brothers have done had this Lazarus been raised from the dead? They would have murdered him. They would have shown their true heart They would have shown the true inward character of the one who would not believe the scriptures, would not believe the gospel, would not believe the Christ of the scriptures. So what is the lesson of this parable? Well, it's the the all-encompassing and total perfect sufficiency of the Bible. It's a plea to take the Bible seriously. When somebody tells me I, I don't really take the Bible seriously, I always want to tell them, well, it is by the Bible that you will be judged. There will be two books opened on the day of judgment. Revelation 20 says that the book, the books will be opened. That is the book that contains all of the sins you've ever committed. And then the Bible will be opened to show that all of your sins contradict Scripture and that you have violated God's law. So you better take the Bible seriously because God does and he will judge you by it. Now, rather than just sending you off with a quick admonition, everybody read your Bible more. I mean, we could do that. I want to take a page from church history, and I'd like to look at the Puritans in particular, or in general, and one Puritan in particular. The Puritans were primarily English Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries, and they were out to purify the Church of England and of Roman Catholic practices. They said that the Church of England hadn't expunged Roman Catholicism enough yet. They believed that even the Church of England had not been fully reformed in many of their practices that were essentially Catholic in nature. One of the hallmarks of Puritanism was the singular belief in the authority of the Bible. And this was manifested so wonderfully in their lives. It was manifested in the fact that they loved the preached word. It was not unusual for a Puritan preacher to preach for two or three or four hours. One Puritan preacher is noted for giving 64 applications in one sermon. And then you know what Puritan families would go home and do? 
They would go home and they would gather around their dinner table and they would open the Bible to the text that the minister had preached and the father of the family would read the text again and they would say, and this is a Puritan phrase, now the sermon begins, meaning it's time to live out what we know. The Puritans are famous for their family worship. Oh, how faithful they were in their families to pray with one another, to read the scripture with one another, to gather around the fireplace at night when the work of the day was done and to gather around the word of God. Puritan pastors were prolific writers, and they've produced some of the best theological works that we have even today. They believed as pastors that their primary work was in studying God's word and preaching God's word and writing about it. Uh, John Owen wrote thousands and thousands of pages. In fact, the, the joke about John Owen is that why say in 20 words what a thousand will do better? He just wrote and wrote and wrote. They held firmly to the biblical gospel at all costs. But the one thing they were particularly known for is that the Puritans continue to this day to stand as the masters of Bible application, of applying the Bible to your lives. Many of these Puritan pastors served Church of England churches, but they were openly opposed to the compromises made with Roman Catholicism. And so in 1662, the English Parliament passed the Act of Uniformity, and this enforced the Book of Common Prayer as the official liturgy of the church, and any minister who refused to uh, go along with this was to be ejected from the Church of England. And so in 1662, about 2,000 Puritan pastors were kicked out of their churches in what became known as the Great Ejection. And among these pastors who were ejected from their church was the great Thomas Watson. Now, Thomas Watson, like any preacher worth his salt, he preached from the Bible. He also preached about the Bible. He would caution us against a frivolous view of Scripture or thinking that because I attend a church that preaches the Bible in depth and in detail that this automatically means I love the Word of God. It does not mean that. He maintained that godliness and a love for Scripture went hand in hand. And so what I'd like to do with our remaining time this morning is I'd like to share what Thomas Watson said about his love for the Word of God. He maintained from Psalm 119, verse 97, that the true believer in Christ must have, should have, a profound love from Scripture. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, in writing about the Bible, Watson divided his thoughts into two major categories with a lot of subcategories, so I'll try to unpack it for you. But I want to use his terminology as much as I can because it's very powerful. So two major categories that he wrote of. The first category... We are to love the written word. We are to love the written word. And he gives some parts of the word that we are to love. He gives three of them. He said, first, love the counseling part of the word. Love the counseling part of the word. And I'm going to give you a lot of quotes from him as we go. You don't have to try to write them down. But he said, the word of God is the rule of life for the Christian to follow. That it's, it's odd and it's antithetical to say I'm a Christian but I don't believe the Bible I don't follow the Bible Watson said quote the word is the statue which points us to our duty Psalm 119 verse 24 your testimonies are my delight they are my counselors there's been two times in my life when I honestly did not know what to do and so I sat down and decided I made photocopies of the whole book of Proverbs because I hate to mark up my Bible that's just a weird thing with me 
I made photocopies of the book of Proverbs, and I read all of the book of Proverbs, highlighting any verse that I thought had something to do with my situation. And in both those times, by the time I finished chapter 31, I knew exactly what to do. That was an amazing experience, and I hope to do that again. So we love the counseling part of the word. He gives a second part of we are to love the written word. Love the threatening part of the word. Love the threatening part of the word. Watson said, quote, The scripture is like the Garden of Eden. As it has a tree of life in it, so has a flaming sword at its gates. He goes on to say, It flashes fire in the face of every person who goes on obstinately in wickedness. The word thunders out threatenings against the very appearance of evil. He says, quote, the Christian loves the menaces of the word. He knows there is love in every threat. Did you hear that? He knows there is love in every threat. God would not have us perish. Therefore, he mercifully threatens us so that he may scare us from sin. So he said, love the consoling part of the word. Love the threatening part of the word. I'm sorry, the counseling part of the word, the threatening part of the word. The third one, love the consoling parts of the word. The consoling parts of the word. And, and this is familiar to us. Psalm ninety-four, nineteen: When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Thomas Watson said, You run to the word of God like a child runs into his mother's arms. He says, You pray as you enter the word of God. Psalm 119.28, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So those are three ways he says that we are to love the written word, or three parts of the word, rather. And then he gives a list of how we are to love the written word. This is a long list. I think there's nine things on here. I haven't even counted. But again, he's a Puritan. He gets to get away with this. Now, let me just put this in context. Watson was living in a time not, not long after it was illegal to own a Bible written in English. And so for a, a Christian to not read their Bible, that was a complete mystery to a Puritan because just a generation or two earlier, Christians were dying for the Word of God. There have been as many martyrs who have died for the Scriptures as any other issue. Some have died over the Lord's table. Others have died over their view of baptism. Others have died, of course, over their view of the gospel. But so many, especially in England, died because they held that the common man should have a Bible. And this was still a very, very near and dear memory to the Puritans. And so for a Puritan to say, I love God, but I don't love his word, was, was odd to them. So he gives ways to love the written word. And we'll go through this quickly. And these are obvious, but, but good reminders. By diligently reading it. By diligently reading it. That's a good place to start. But Watson says something interesting. He says that we are to read the word greedily. That we're to have a, a greed toward the word of God. And he said that we are to be like Apollos in Acts 18, who was called mighty in the scriptures. We're, we're to be greedy for the word of God. Another way he says to love the written word, by frequently meditating on it. By frequently meditating on it. Now, I know New Age philosophy has ruined the word meditation for us. But to meditate on the word of God has to do with pondering it, taking a little tiny piece and deciding that you're going to chew on that in your mind and in your heart. How long? Well, Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
It's the idea of reading a passage of Scripture perhaps in the morning or the night before when you go to bed and taking that little phrase and just deciding, I'm going, to, I'm going to think on that and I'm going to pray through it. I'm going to wonder about it and see what the Lord does through that. Another way to love the written word, by delighting in it. Delighting in it. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name. They became the delight of my heart. You know what Watson said reading the Bible is for the Christian? He said, it's our recreation. It's our recreation. I, I know reality. I know the reality that when faced with the opportunity to watch a really good movie or to read your Bible, that we don't usually think, but reading the Bible is so much more fun. But Watson says it should be. It is our recreation and the root of that word, our recreation. It's what bolsters our soul. It's what builds us up. Diligently reading it, meditating on it, delighting in it. He also says we love the written word by hiding it. By hiding it. And he quotes Psalm 119 verse 11. I have stored up your word, or more famously, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The art of scripture memory is very often a lost art. How is the best way to memorize a scripture? I would say by reading it, meditating on it, and delighting in it. And the scripture memory comes more naturally that way. He also says we love the written word by defending it. By defending it. Revelation 6 verse 9, When I opened the fifth seal, I saw unto the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are tribulation saints who have died for the word of God. Now, I think that's probably a price you won't be asked to pay. But maybe if that were a little closer to our reality, we might appreciate the word of God a little bit more. That if you knew you could be arrested or die for being caught with your Bible, what would your value of the Bible be? It would go infinitely higher. He goes on, he says that we love the word, written word by preferring it, by preferring it. Job twenty three twelve. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. In other words, scripture ought not to be an add-on to your busy life. It's not something you tack onto your life. It ought to be the central focus of your life. It should be where you start. And then he says, of course, we love the written word by conforming to it, conforming to it. You can read it all you want, but if, you, if it's not making changes, if you're not, if you're not denying yourself because of what the word says, Watson said this, the word is our sundial by which we set our lives. When was the last time, and this is a rhetorical question, when was the last time that you were faced with a difficult relational problem or decision and you said, time out, let me see what scripture says about this and that's what I'll do rather than letting whatever comes to your mind jump through your mouth 1.2 seconds later to say, stop, what does the Bible say? We conform to it. He says, also, we love the written word by talking about it. Talking about it. He quotes from the King James Version of Psalm 119, verse 172, my tongue shall speak of thy word. And Watson's lesson is that godly people talk about Scripture. One of the things I enjoy most at Grace Bible Church is to see conversations about the Word of God happening before, during, and after church. I love that. But this is a good lesson. It's a true lesson. But I want to add one more to Watson. 
because he, trans, he, he quotes from the King James Version, my tongue shall speak of thy word. Modern English translations are correct in that the, the word translated in the King James Version, speak, more accurately should be translated to sing. To sing. And so we love the written word by singing about it. Psalm 119.172, English Standard Version, my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. What is the content of good worship music? It is the word of God. That's how we judge music. So we are to love the written word. He gives a second category. We are to love the preached word. We are to love the preached word. He said we are to love the the holiness of the preached word. First of all, the holiness of the preached word. In Ezekiel 33, at the end of the chapter, God gives Ezekiel the prophet an evaluation of the prophet's congregation. He says this, They say to one another, Come and hear what the word is that is from the Lord. But, quote, They sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. And God says that for them, for Ezekiel's congregation, everybody comes like they come to a music recital. They want to hear the instrumentalists. They want to be entertained. They want something to tickle their ears. What does that sound like? It sounds like a problem in the church today. And God condemns Ezekiel's congregation that the preached word is not holy to them. The preached word of God is holy. That's why I don't mind asking somebody, why are you doing that? Because what's happening right now is holy. It is important. We are to love the preached, the holiness of the preached word. Watson also says we are to love the conviction of the preached word. The conviction of the preached word. And I think this is what separates the, the girls from the ladies, so to speak, when it comes to maturity in our faith. Watson says this. Do we love the preached word when it comes home to our conscience and shoots its arrows of reproof at our sins? He who can speak smooth words in the pulpit but does not know how to reprove is like a sword with a fine hilt without an edge. In other words, he says that the preacher who waves the Bible around but doesn't convict of sin with it is like a guy walking around with a sword that's dull. It doesn't cut. It doesn't do its work. And so he gives three tests on how to know if you love the reproof or the conviction of the word of God. If you get nothing else this whole weekend, I hope you get this. These are his three tests. Test number one, you desire to sit under heart-searching preaching. You desire to sit under heart-searching preaching. He calls it ministry. In England, they call preaching the ministry. The first time I preached in England, everybody said, thank you for your ministry. I had no idea what they were talking about. But you desire to sit under heart-searching ministry or preaching. He says this. Watson says, quote, Who cares for medicines that will not work? The godly will not choose to sit under a ministry that will not work upon his conscience. In other words, you want something to happen to you. He gives a second test. When you pray that the preached word would battle your sin. Sometimes you may want to sit under the preached word, but you don't really want it to do anything. He says, when you pray that the preached word would battle your sin. Watson says this, quote, If there is any traitorous lust in our heart, we would have it found out and executed. We do not want sin to be covered, but cured. We can open ourselves to the bullet of the word of God and say, Lord, smite my sin. 
That's a great test. And this third test is when you feel truly thankful for a reproof. When you feel truly thankful for a reproof. Psalm 141, verse 5, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And so Watson says this on the preached word, quote, Do we prize it in our judgments? Do we receive it into our hearts? Do we fear the loss of the word preached more than the loss of peace and trade? Do we attend to the preached word with reverential devotion? When the word is preached, the great God is giving us his charge. Do we listen to it as a matter of life and death? I've been preaching for a long time, and I can tell when it's not a matter of life and death for someone. I can tell by body language. I can tell by, by just the, the, the visceral reaction to the preached word. You see some people who are just kind of ho-hum week after week after week after week after week, and I see others on the edge of their seat, sometimes with tears in their eyes, writing things down and attending, attending to every word. I can see it. I can see it. One of the, my heroes of the faith is a guy by the name of Dr. W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell began his over 50 years at First Baptist Church of Dallas in 1944. He preached over 4,000 sermons from that pulpit. And in the course of church history, that's a phenomenal feat. He did something unusual in the Southern Baptist Church at that time. He began preaching verse by verse through the Bible. In fact, he was so disturbed by the fact that his church, his people didn't bring their Bibles to church. And, and he, he asked in the middle of one sermon, he said, where is everybody's Bible? And so in 1946, he made an announcement to his leadership and to the whole church. He said, I will be preaching the Bible. Every verse in the Bible, beginning in Genesis 1, verse 1. Well, people told him, you're going to kill the church. People won't come. They don't want to hear the whole Bible. They just want to hear the little pieces and the little parts. And there was this huge uproar. And W.A. Criswell stood alone. He said, too bad. I'm preaching the Bible to whoever shows up. Well, 17 and a half years later, he finished the last book, the last book of the Bible, finished the last chapter, the last verse of Revelation, now with several thousand more members, having baptized many thousands because the Word of God is powerful and effective. And now he had a church that loved the Word of God and would have nothing else but the Word of God. They had blossomed under the pure, cool water of the Bible. And that's my hope for you as well. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the Bible. You have not left us to guess. What a horror that would be to have to wonder how to please our Creator and to not know. But you gave us a book, and in it you began, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you proceed to show us the purpose of all mankind, you proceed to show us the origin of all sin, and you give us hope for redemption from sin through a Savior that harkens all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis and is seen in shadow form all through the Old Testament and then comes to full glory in the New Testament. And so we thank you and praise you for the Bible. As you said to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, that this is not an idle word for you. It is your life. And I pray, Lord, that the Bible would not be an idle word for us, but it would be our life. We thank you and praise you 
in Christ's name, who is revealed in the scriptures. Amen. Amen.